One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's extremely frightening to ask ourselves what we really think and feel because so much of what we really think and feel is bound up with loss and sadness and regret and fear you know so we don't not know ourselves just by accident we're positively in flight from ourselves because it is simply so terrifying to get to know ourselves i'm sarah wilson and this is wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Welcome back to Wild, everyone, after a bit of an Australian summer break and Happy New Year to all of you. I'm refreshingly excited to be continuing our exploration here and I have a good solid list of big-minded guests coming up. Uh, who have a wild idea for living a fuller, more respectful, more meaningful, discerning life on this precious planet. And kicking off today, I've got a very special guest. It's long been my view that once we understand and appreciate and even love our anxiety or our various mental health quirks more broadly, then we can begin to not only heal from the pain that they cause, but also come to thrive with them. The title of my book about my own journey with anxiety, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, speaks to this. I've also long argued that discerning, reflective thinking, going layers deep into the pain that anxiety and mental distress presents, is the best path. We must pass through, not around, anxiety to reap the rich, challenging, meaning-making rewards that it can eventually bring to a troubled soul. Reading philosophical works... I think it's one of the best ways to do this. And as some of you might know, I call it soul nerding. So my guest today is one of the UK's most well-known philosophers, and he has dedicated his life to applying philosophical reflection to, well, everyday life. Alain de Baton has written 15 books to this effect, including the hugely popular philosophical novel, Essays in Love, which he wrote at the age of 23, and it went on to become an international bestseller. He's also written a bunch of others that you might have heard of, How Proust Can Change Your Life, The Art of Travel, Art as Therapy and Status Anxiety. He's also the founder of The School of Life, which operates out of London and has offices in Paris, Amsterdam, Antwerp, Seoul, Istanbul, Tel Aviv, Berlin and until recently Sydney and Melbourne. But in his recent book, The Therapeutic Journey, he has turned his focus to mental health and how philosophy can be used as a therapeutic aid. Alain and I have been in email contact for a number of years, and finally we got to meet as I passed through London recently. We recorded at the We Are 8 offices where they supplied us with tea and dark chocolate, and you'll find out the relevance of this in a moment. There is a little bit of background office noise, but it fits with the more conversational vibe of this episode. Alain shares a bunch of consolations and reflections that can assist in getting to a richer understanding of anxiety and ultimately to help people, as he says, to feel less lonely in their affliction. Alain often incorporates artwork into his books and in this chat, I get him to talk through two favourite works of art and the consolations we can draw from the artist's intent – And so I've posted these images on my Substack, sarahwilson.substack.com, where you can follow along with this episode. You can also post questions and join the conversation with me and the rest of the community after the episode. I'll see you over there. Alain de Baton, thank you so much for your patience. This has been a, a bit of a trial. I've been coming from Paris on a Eurostar that was running late getting into London, madly running to these We Are Eight offices, 
So thank you so much for all the to and fro emails. I've been a fan of your work for many years. I've read quite a number of your books over the years. And I suppose I've always loved the freedom with which you write. I know as a writer, you probably don't feel that you're in some kind of free space when you're doing it, not to diminish the amount of work that you put into it. But I would love to kick off perhaps with just touching on the writing process. A lot of people listening to this podcast are writers and would love to know, I guess, how you go about writing. And you, in fact, quote Ralph Waldo Emerson in your book. You write that in every work of genius, we recognise our own rejected thoughts. And I, I agree with that. As a journalist, I always felt that my job was to put on paper or into print what other people felt that they were already thinking. They were like, I was thinking exactly that same thing, you know. That is the job of a good writer. And a lot of your books are very experimental. You inject visuals into your writing the Course of Love was part fiction, part sort of philosophical narrative. And then you wrote a book, I think, using Twitter. And I remember at the time being blown away by this. You sat at an airport, a week at the airport, writing tweets about what you observed. So you've been very experimental. What for you, I guess, creates the confidence to be that person mm. that plants what other people are feeling and thinking onto a page? Like how do you go about that process of starting out a book? I think the itch I'm always trying to assuage is what's going on? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be human, to be alive? Particularly trying to put my finger on sources of pleasure and sources of pain. Those are the two things that get me, you know, wanting to analyze and theorize. I mean, I think, you know, human beings could be divided into what people do when they're anxious. Some people go jogging, some people go drinking, some people chat to friends, some people, mm. you know, go to lovers, some people head for family. And some people head to a pen and paper and they try and write their way mm. out of fear, but also joy. And, but any, anyway, things that are a little bit uncontrollable, either in their ecstatic nature or in their terrifying nature. So for me, writing is a, is a form of kind of containment of, of emotions whose liveliness could be both overwhelming or dispiriting. Mm. So trying to kind of calm things down in a, in a way. That's how writing started. I mean, my writing really follows on from the diaries, the journals that I kept as a teenager when life first started kind of manifesting itself in, in this overwhelming way. I just found relief in writing stuff down. Yeah. And I'm still that writer. I mean, it may not look like my diary, but it basically always is my diary. Yeah. Like, you know, filtered through other things, filtered with, with interactions with, you know, other bits of culture and experience. But but broadly speaking, I'm always trying to kind of analyze existence as I experience it. And it's a way of feeling better, I would say. It is a form of therapy. It is a therapeutic process. I totally agree. I, When I'm not coping, I will write it down. And I write about this in my book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, that when I'm in a really bad place, you know, if I'm on the other side of the world, I will go, first of all, somewhere in a public setting, so I'll go and sit at a cafe or a bar, so that I'm almost held accountable. I have to rise to my best self. I can't just wallow and descend. And then I'll get any piece of paper. So I've been known to write on the back of serviettes, receipts, whatever I can get a hold of. And I write shorthand in, you know, my old journalistic sort of habit. And I don't intend on ever reading it back. It's it's the process of 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 kind of seeing it there outside of myself and yeah I mean we're very fortunate as writers to be able to then make money from it <laughs> and assist others you know in the world with it so but the terrifying thing is you know the concept of a muse you know for most of sort of kind of renaissance onwards in Europe there was this idea that artists had muses it's a kind of sexist and ridiculous idea it was only a woman and kind of come to the artist workshops but it captures something because it's an ancient Greek idea before that but it captures something of the insecurity with which all artists relate to their own material. It's not quite yours. You know, whether you want to say that it's a muse or the unconscious or something that's not entirely in your grasp. You know, you can't sit down and think, now I'm going to write something decent. You know, it's it's closer to something like fishing, where you kind of put your rod in the water and you're kind of hoping that something's going to swim along, but you can't bet on it. And you need to, you know, wait and be patient and, and be grateful for things that occur. Over the years, I've worked out a few hacks. I mean, I think that the night is a very good time. You know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, the unconscious is a little bit more present. The Your defenses are a little less active. 
And the weirder and in a way more valuable parts of one's perceptions are kind of there. And then you have a chance of writing something that not everybody knows already, as it were. Or it's, it is, it's their unconscious rather than their conscious. Yeah. You're trying to always write from unconscious to unconscious. I love that description. Two things come to mind. I remember Dave Chappelle was being inter- interviewed by Jerry Seinfeld on his program. Was it Comedians Getting Coffee in Cars or something? And he talks about the car pulls up outside and honks its horn, right? The, you know, it's the muse. It's the creative impulse. And, you know, you might be wearing pyjamas halfway through your dinner. You can't use that as an excuse. You just got to get out there and get into the passenger seat. You know, not the driver's seat, the passenger seat and just trust and go. And there's a certain flamboyance, freedom, I don't know, this kind of really bizarre elan that that creates. I have techniques for getting myself into that openness. I will often find that when I go into really deep sadness, I will try to use that space to to write. And then also in nature, I'll go out into nature. I'll do this wild run you know, in, in bushland or in a forest. Yeah. And I take a piece of paper and a pen down my sports bra and frantically write out the notes or sort of dictate them into my phone as I go, yeah. which I know lots of philosophers used to do. Nietzsche, I think, used to walk with a piece of paper in his walking staff. Yeah. But actually, it's interesting. I, I did pull up a quote that I draw from one of your books that I use in First We Make the Beast Beautiful. And you mentioned sleep or nighttime, I should say, nighttime. And you talk about, yeah, insomnia as not necessarily a bad thing. It can serve a purpose. And you talk about it as an articulate, maddening, but ultimately healthy plea released by our core self that we confront the issues we've been put off for too long. Insomnia isn't really to do with our not being able to sleep. It's about not having given ourselves a chance to think. And it is true. In the middle of the night, I often feel that that's the only time that my discerning thinking has a chance to unfurl. And I've always found that a very consoling wisdom that you shared. I can't remember which book it was, but yeah, I think that's a, a really in, important wisdom that you shared with us all. Look, it's a, it's a sort of agonizing existential truth that the amount that we're able to consciously think represents a fraction tiny fraction of all that we actually are. And most of us, you know, all of us will go to our graves with most of our thoughts unexplored. It breaks my heart. (laughs) It's like like we possess a a gigantic library and we occasionally, with a sort of torch, go in and pick out a few volumes, but there are racks and racks of these Mm. volumes that we'll never really see. And when we die, it's like tipping the whole library of Alexandria into the sea and you never see it again. It's, it's heartbreaking. And I think that, you know, as writers, the, the, the challenge is, can I, can I just do a little bit better? Can I just get out you know, three volumes rather than one out of the darkness? Mm. But, you know, one question is, why are we such strangers to ourselves? And, you know, we've been talking about anxiety already. I mean, it's extremely frightening to ask ourselves what we really think and feel beneath the kind of, you know, chatter of the day. Because so much of what we really think and feel is bound up with loss and sadness and regret and fear of various sorts. You know, there's fear that we'll disappoint people. There's fear that we won't fit in anymore. There's you know, regret for all the things we haven't done. You know, all, all these things yeah. are, are quite frightening. So we don't not know ourselves just by accident. This is the great insight of psychoanalysis. We, we're positively in flight from ourselves because it is simply so terrifying to get to know ourselves that we, frankly, would rather do anything. And if there's, you know, some social media around or uh, some friends or some alcohol or whatever else, you know, yeah, I'm there because you, you don't want to do that hard work of digging in. Yeah, I often say that the real pain of anxiety is that we today we get anxious about being anxious and then we get anxious about being anxious about being anxious and so on and so forth. And so we do this compounding version of anxiety merely because we don't sit in that original anxiety and ask ourselves, why am I feeling this way? What is my anxiety trying to tell me? What is it uncovering? Instead, we live in a culture where we tell ourselves we must not feel this way. We've got such an anti-discomfort culture. We feel we need to complain, go and ask for the manager, why am I feeling this? I shouldn't be feeling this way. And of course, that creates that spiraling, dominoing anxiety. Such a useful exercise just to 
I always say to people, you know, lie in bed when you're feeling anxious, shut your eyes and ask yourself, what am I really worried about? And it's such a simple question, but just to give yourself a little bit of time, like what are you, you know, you're running, you're running, so stop running. What are you actually worrying about? And, you know, once we have the answering view, but we used to do this all the time. I mean, it's a daily, more than once daily exercise because there's always something going on. But as you say, you know, the, the great, again, it's a great insight of psychoanalysis that anxiety is, is merely fear that doesn't know itself. Once we know it, it, it diminishes just like depression, it's sadness that doesn't know itself. Yeah. So it's that, it's that ignorance of the cause that breeds this kind of low-level fog that settles in on us. Yeah, anxiety and despair are their own fix in many ways. Mm. You know, it's, it takes us to the place that we're craving to go to, it takes us there kicking and screaming, but we must go there to move, th- to move away from it. And it's only through moving through it that we're able to move yeah. away from it. And we've lost those lessons. And, you know, our culture today is about denying that. And, and almost in an outraged way, I should not be feeling this way. And so you do everything to not feel that way. Look, I'd argue that humans have been doing this for centuries. Yeah, alcohol's been around a while. Alcohol's been around a while. You know, I don't want to offend any of your listeners, but religion has been around here a while. And that has a role to play in not necessarily naming the thing that really is going on and putting mm-hmm. different names on it, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, humans have never had an enormous appetite for the truth. And arguably, we are at least kind of, you know, aware of the problem now in a way that, you know, there are forces of distraction that are perhaps more powerful than ever, but there are also forces of insight that yes. are slightly more rigorous than, than ever. We have a great opportunity and uh, hence your book. <laughs> so let's move on to the anxiety piece in it all. I'm wondering why you decided to write this book. Is it because you feel a responsibility to speak to what people are feeling or was it personal? And I, I, I will quote you again, and I'm sorry to keep doing this to you. You might be surprised by your own words, but you did in fact write this. I, I write about this in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, and I concur with it. It's really my modus operandi as well. You say, we must suffer alone, but we can at least hold out our arms to our similarly tortured, fractured, and above all else anxious neighbours, as if to say in the kindest way possible, I know. Yeah, you like those words. Like yeah, words. yeah. <laughs> so yes, was it was it a sense of responsibility or was there some kind of personal trigger? Both, both. Mm. But I think, you know, I think something becomes a book rather than a diary entry when you see that something in you does connect with border experience. Otherwise you just think, you know, this is this is simply not for general consumption. Mm. But I think I began to to notice, partly through my through my work, through meeting people, etc., that yeah. A lot of people go through all sorts of hard states of the soul and and those states of the soul tend to follow certain patterns. And I recognize them in myself and I started to recognize them in other people. And I thought, okay, that's, that's the moment that a book just states when you realize mm. it's not merely personal idiosyncrasy, it's actually a thing out in the world. And I think that I wanted to write a book that people in a crisis could read about three in the morning because I think three in the morning is a very lonely hour. Oh yeah, and it's know. it's and they're saying I think Chinese medicine terms it's the liver. Right. It's when the liver's doing its work, and the liver holds so much emotion, right. a very sad emotion. Right. I, I mean, this might be a bit woo woo for for yourself or some for, for for some listeners, but I think people are very familiar with that three a.m. That's very particular time, isn't it? You know, you probably spend time asleep to get you to three a.m. So your kind of defenses are low, your unconscious is more apparent. As if no one else is around, uh, you know, there are terrors and fears, you know, death is stalking you, right. meaninglessness, other people can seem very far away, etc. And I think I've often thought of my books as, you know, friends that you might have at that time. In other words, what do you need at that time? Do you need to kind of learn anything, you know, academic? Probably not. What you really need is... I know this sounds sentimental, but I'll say it anyway, a friend. And I yeah. think I do see, you know, some of my favourite writers, I do envisage as having, first and foremost, a friendly voice. Yeah, a I voice mean. where you feel like, hey, this person. Do you remember there's that wonderful bit in uh, The Catcher in the Rye, where Holden Caulfield says that the definition of a great writer is someone you want to call up on the telephone and uh, chat to about everything that's on your mind. And I th- always thought, it's so simple. Yeah, as many yeah. in that book are. But, but very much on point. That, that yes, uh, what we want is is like just someone who feels like... Who reaches out as if to say, I know. 
to quote you. <laughs> yeah. And so I was trying to write that sort of book. And, you know, I think there's also a real, the book is full of descriptions of pain, but it's also full of descriptions of sweet and lovely and beautiful things. And I think that anyone who's having a tough life in their own mind, it's probably going to be simultaneously aware of a lot of darkness and have kind of epiphanies of light and things that strike them as especially wonderful. It might be quite small things. You know, flowers might suddenly really loom large in their imagination mm. or a, a, a kind of meal or a certain kind of interaction with a stranger or, or, or something. It's the so-called small things that, that aren't difficult that suddenly assume this greater value. So the book is also full of evocations of these small, lovely things that can get you through to, to mm. the daytime. Yeah, I like that. That's a really nice premise for writing a book. You talk a lot about in the book about how anxiety and despair or mental illness is about losing connection with your healthy mind. And you say the truth is that we have lost command of about a third of our minds and are pulling together our, our ideas from the most degenerate, traumatised, unreliable and vicious aspects of ourselves. You also say in a similar vein, we should strive to become thinkers who can acknowledge when they are no longer able to think. And I think that's a really great way of describing what's something of an irony, right? We can be in this deep pain when we're in anxiety, but we are almost unaware of how much of our sensibility we've lost. That's right. And we don't forgive ourselves for that. We don't allow for it. We don't put up buttressing around ourselves in those moments. We think we can just keep soldiering on. And of course, our faculties are at, you know, at 30%. So what I would love for you to do, and because your book actually surprisingly has a bunch of almost hacks, practical tips for returning to that healthy mind, you know, steering the ship back in that direction. You've already mentioned one, this idea of lying down. And you say, we need to lie down, perhaps on a couch, maybe with music, close our eyes and endure things, endure things. I think that's so, so important. Metaphorically on foot. And I presume what you mean by that is to walk it, to wrestle and wrangle with it, almost in a physical way. And you say, only when we have returned afresh to our suffering and know it in our bones will it ever promise to leave us alone. Mm. I just the other day was going through terrible time and my new French friend, we were just talking off air, listeners about whether I've made French friends in Paris. I was talking to her about things, having a bit of a whinge, and she said to me, ah, darling, you just need to go home and lie on the couch and have a good conversation with yourself, which I think is the very pragmatic French way of doing things. But she's right. I mean, that's kind of what you're saying. Have a dialogue with yourself where you, as you said before, ask yourself, what is going on here? What is my pain telling me? Those deep kind of questions. Um, Is that something that you do? Yes. I mean, you know, again, that's the basis of therapy, ideally. It doesn't always work, but especially psychoanalysis, you're supposed to lie on a couch and and in a slightly dreamy way, without pressure from anyone else, actually take a sounding from your deep self with an encouraging person. But you can do it on your own as well. I think you can take a, yeah, take, take an, have an audience with yourself. It sounds so odd. But I think it's true. And that's why writing could be really good because it feels like a conversation with yourself. Mm. I sometimes when I'm in those moments and I do that writing therapy technique, I I, I almost treat it as though I'm having a conversation with me, you know, mm. and giving myself advice. Yeah. 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 But, you know, look, let's also remember that, you know, and I, I discuss this in the book and, and in other places, some of our problem as humans is we have these enormously long periods of gestation, unlike a horse or another kind of animal that's up and running in you know, days, hours, we stay in a very particular fixed place known as the family for at least 18, 20 years. And those are enormously influential years where we learn all sorts of things. We are told who we are, either directly or most often indirectly who we are, what our value is, you know, what relationships are like, what mm. men and women are like, what love is like, what work is for, blah, blah, All these things are imbibed. And we don't really notice that we've sucked in this incredible kind of educational curriculum hmm. that you know, we're speaking a language of emotional functioning and we don't know how particular it is. And it can take so long for us, you know, often in relationships, but also in friendships and others, someone to point out, hang on a minute, you you know, you're doing something slightly weird here. You know, I don't, you know, and sometimes we get angry, and if, especially if that message is being delivered 
nastilies. It sometimes is. We get defensive and, you know, want to throw an insult back. And that's unfortunate. But if we can bear to, sometimes real insight can come about. And we think, yeah, I have been walking through the world with a very particular perspective on my self-worth, on yeah. money, on achievement, on love, you know, whatever it is. And almost always these things that we've learned have come from an early childhood environment. You could call it habitat if you wanted to be some more Darwinian. We all come from very particular habitats. And these habitats, we learn to survive in them through certain strategies. And those strategies in later life have a horrible habit of not being optimal to our own function. You know, for, for example, to give you listeners an example, you know, we all know people who, for example, don't seem to feel very much. They seem very tough, very defended, very removed. Not just men, women too. People who don't feel very much. And you might go, well, why is that person like that? What, you know, why can't they be more emotional, etc.? Well, almost always, if you dig back in their history, there was a point when being like that was survival. It was a fantastic, very intelligent survival strategy. You know, if you're growing up around an alcoholic or around someone who's threatening suicide or around someone who's abusive or around someone who loves somebody else or whatever, not to feel, well, that's fantastic. That's a pretty clever response. But is it so great when you're 45 trying to have a relationship? Probably not. But, you know, very often we are still imprinted with the legacy of these responses that mm. once made a lot of sense, but no longer do. And a huge part of understanding oneself is, is kind of learning to see you know, with, with mirrors, the mirrors that others can provide, that our own introspection can provide, the, the methods of adaptation that are no longer serving as well. Yeah. Uh, you say this in your book that, you know, digging back into our childhood is tedious and incredibly boring and frustrating. And most of us don't want to do it. But if we can see it through that sort of framing, that it is about understanding how our thinking became dysfunctional and not able to serve us. And for the bulk of those 18 years, we're small little entities, right? So we're absorbing stuff like huge amounts of in information into this small little being yeah. that has no other input, yeah. you know? And also, no, has no other resources. I mean, the thing about That's it. children, which we often forget, is they are entirely at the mercy of their caregivers. What do you do when you're three? We're wandering out and you know, seek new people. No, you've got to survive. And, you know, you, you will, humans are very clever. They will devise survival strategies for the most adverse situations. And they tend to work very well until adulthood, when they're no longer needed. And they tend to have come at a huge price. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rude awakening, isn't it? When you start to realize that the strategies that you have, they're not false, but they're no longer serving you. And there's a sadness in releasing those. I, I come across them, you know, regularly and, you know, I'm midlife and it's always strange, isn't it? When yeah. they're still coming up Yeah. and, you know, like, really, I'm still having to wrestle with this and drop off these expectations and assumptions. You do have a number of different techniques, tips and everything, but I've got to say that I do like your mini chapter on food. It feels like a little bit of an indulgence, I've got to say, Alan, but we seem to have a very similar dietary protocol. <laughs> Figs are my happy food. And you referred to the fig seems to understand sadness and vulnerability. I don't know why, but I completely understand what you're saying there. They're like these little teardrops almost ugly things yeah. that are really not a great advertisement for what's inside, which is this incredible abundance, you know? And we keep forgetting that they exist. I mean, I think, you know, generally, because yeah. they're not available all around yet. But yeah. And then suddenly they pop up. We think, God, that's a fig. Where's the fig been all my life? Hmm. And, and it's one of these things, you know, if you if you have that sort of taste, they could be a major source of uplift. Oh, my goodness. I can't tell you how much I love them. I mean, I grill them and with sort of a bit of cinnamon and salt and I have it with some kind of goat's cheese on on Turkish bread and that every year is my treat on my birthday because, of course, my birthday is in Australian summer. So I relate. I very much relate. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Obviously, you know, some of the listeners may go, I don't know, what about, you know, conquering the world? What, what, is, what are these guys talking about faith for? <laughs> And I think that, you know, Conquering the World has many things going for it. And, you know, most of our media is is focused on the conquerors. And, you know, that's what I mean, has its place. But for most of us, these are not peaks on which we can rest. And in fact, they create a great internal disturbance. And in a way, one could say the real challenge, the real challenge is to accept the terms of an ordinary life, which includes your own mortality and includes relationships with people who will be as flawed as you are, and essentially with, with limits, you know. And, and we do live in a world which, which has a problem with limits, and, and it's always trying to, you know, defy everything. And it's not possible. That, you know, we are limited creatures. We're going to limit yeah. how we live, how much we understand, how much we can, you know, achieve, etc. And it's terribly, terribly difficult for, I think, everyone to, to adjust to those limits. You know, we, I mean, we know from early childhood, Every child is a megalomaniac, at, 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 you know, as an omnipotent little, as Freud called child, the little emperor, uh, or empress. Every child goes through that phase. And with good parenting, the idea is that the child is able to relinquish some of their fantasies of world domination and accept their role, you know, without, I've got an analyst who always says, without invading Poland. Uh, Remember, that's Hitler. Uh, uh, you know, if only Hitler had been, you know, helped to adjust the fact, yes, he didn't get into art school, and he had many disappointments, and you know he wasn't so great looking, a bit short, etc. You know, if we don't accept that, it may be tempted to lay out our foiled megalomaniac wishes and, as it were, invade Poland. I think Hitler needed to meditate on a fig. I think this is the salve. But I think your point is this: that we really, it's not so much about the fig; it's about the meditation on it, and the reflection on it, and the absorption of it, and sitting still with it. And I think what that does is creates a congruency with our place in the world. And when we experience congruency, we feel safe. We feel like our life also has meaning. It makes sense because we're part of some kind of natural rhythm. And I think the words, it's not so much your love of figs that I'm fascinated by, it's the words that you use because I think poetry and certain prose also does that it plants us in that still moment. And with poetry in particular, it's those gaps between the words. That's where we can feel a congruency. We get it without needing it to be spelled out, so to speak. You also love dark chocolate, as do I. I eat the stuff for breakfast every single morning. It brings me so much joy. And I can see that it does you too, because this is what you've written about it as one of your, I guess, ways of sitting in the boundedness of life. It can be as black as the night we fear, but it is without melodramatic sweetness and without a grown-up understanding sternness on our side. It leaves behind an almost metallic taste that endows us with courage and resolve without adding guilt or judgment. When it's 90%. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I love that. That takes me straight to my experience of eating dark chocolate, but also other experiences. But also just that small moments are worth just absorbing and touching on. And the delicateness is, is really key, you know, to making us feel more comfortable in life. I think, you know, small parents of small children know that the things that small children say are their moods are only partly rational, that they rest on a base of physical experience and physical dependence, which is why, you know, a relatively sunny child can just suddenly very quickly say, I hate you, mummy, I hate you, Ugh. I hate the world, I want to die. And and if you're a sort of first-time parent, you think, oh my goodness, what's happened? The child's gone mad. The child hasn't gone mad. The child just needs a nap or an orange juice. They just need to be taken straight to their room, 
put, pull the curtains and just lay them down for an hour and then they'll be sane again. And I think some of the same applies to us grown-ups, but we don't do ourselves the honor of thinking that we're built this way. We sort of imagine, it comes back to your earlier point about you know, overemphasizing our sort of rational command. And I think it is part of good thinking to know that after a while, particularly if you've not slept for a while, you won't be thinking anymore. You'll just be turning around in circles. Your thinking has become, you know, paranoid or sterile. And to be able to recognize that is is just a sort of basic humility that it can take years to learn. Yeah, humility and grown upness. I think it's about taking responsibility for your for your limited abilities. And you know, I describe having bipolar as being like carrying a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of your life. Mm. It's your responsibility to maintain a stability within yourself, to modulate your highs and lows so that you don't spend your life tipping, sloshing this water all over everybody around you and ruining their experience of life. And so that you're not spending your entire existence having to go back to the source and filling up again. So how have you learned how to do that? What, what are some of the ways in which? Yeah, there's a bunch of things. Um, writing, and I meant to say earlier, writing as well as walking. So I do a lot of hiking. That's been my number one self. But both go at the same pace as discerning thought. So there's been various experiments that show that that's the case. And there's a rhythm to both walking and handwriting that enables our best thinking, our discerning thinking. And I think a lot of my frenetic manic energy could be described as not being able to order my thoughts in a discerning way you know so there are two techniques that I use having a spiritual or philosophical kind of practice is really key you know I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who was writing a letter of consolation to his nephew I think or godson who was despairing about being a young person and he said listen you're not the only person who's gone through this. Many before you have. And the great thing is they've generally turned out to be great writers who've written books about it. So, you know, I call it soul nerding, you know, and I think that's a practice that, that helps me maintain a steadiness. Yeah, and having those conversations in the dark at 3am, they're super, super important. In my book, I talk about these ideas of cruel ironies, these sort of paradoxes that exist for people with anxiety. So, you need people and yet you push them away, you know. There's a whole range of them. And I, you pick up on a few as well of these sort of unfair absurdities. They can seem very unfair. One of them is that we will be in pain, as I mentioned before, but fail to face it, you know, to really own it. And you say, and I'm quoting you again, one of the stranger aspects of feeling anxious is that we can be both suffering and markedly un- uninclined or unable to acknowledge that we are in fact so It says, if somewhere in our thoughts, we worry that looking at our anxiety directly will bring us harm, slow us down, cause us pain, or just be of no use. And I think that's a really interesting sort of subtlety that is worth exploring because I think a lot of people feel that it's a waste of time. You know, we're not invading Poland. We're not conquering the world when we attend to this kind of thing. For you, Alain, at this stage in your life, how important is it Mm. to sit and do this work? It's possibly the most important thing Mm. because because I think the goal of life is ultimately peace of mind. However, you quite want to define that. But, you know, once you get to a certain stage, yeah, what you really want is peace of mind. And what threatens peace of mind are bits of experience and, and thought that have not been processed, if you like. And so being able to do that processing so that you're able to kind of defuse anxieties and trace them back to their origins. And, you know, the, the psychoanalyst Beyond, English psychoanalyst Beyond, he, he famously said that, that the origins of thinking lie in the work that babies do with their mothers, that a baby will come to its mother full of rage, confusion, anger, envy, etc. And what the mother does ideal idealized mother mm. like was what idealized mother. Yes. Anyway, idealized mother converts this rage etc into manageable digestible thought and i think we all know a version of this so when you call up a friend and you go oh, i don't know what's going on it's you know and the friend reframes your experience and says something like i think you're worried about this you know and then you think oh, you know, we yes. should all have those friends hopefully we all have a friend who could do this and we could do this for friends we just can't do it necessarily always for ourselves but when we're very confused, 
we need someone to just reframe mm. our panic and um, restore us to perspective, which is what we're always losing. It can be useful if we're looking for hacks to imagine what would a friend say at this moment, because we can always do it via a friend, but we can't do it for ourselves. So you can almost say, say you know, if, if I was a friend of this person, me, with this problem, what would I say? You know, and very often the answer is there. It's just we can't apply it yes. so much to ourselves. Yes, so. that's part of understanding that only a third of our brain is working functionally, yeah. you know, and it's to draw on other people. You actually do spend a fair bit of space in the book dedicated to, I suppose, giving advice to people who have others in their lives who are going through despair. Mm-hmm. So it might be parents, it might be a husband or a wife, which I find really interesting because some of the feed- most promising or most wonderful feedback I got when my book came out was the number of people that came up to me and said, I've got a very, very anxious husband or anxious daughter or whatever it might be. What can you tell me to help them with their lives? And I, it, it really jolted me at the time, like, do you mean there's people out there that care enough to want to know how to help people like me? Because anxious people are a pain in the ass, right? They're hard work. We're hard. And that's one of the cruel ironies I discuss is that we are hard and yet we just crave connection more than anything else, possibly more than the average person. So what are some of your, I guess, favourite techniques that you can perhaps share, whether it's for parents who are listening or for lovers, husbands, wives, in terms of what you can do to assist someone when they're in a really despairing place? It's an old and familiar thing. I mean, the thing one should be really wary of is coming in hard with a device you know, saying, look, I think what I think you need is, you know, to go on a trip or to go back to education or to, you know, sack this person or to get divorced or married or whatever it is. These things tend to intrude far too abruptly on someone else's inner life. And, you know, I think a very anxious person, they're always divided between, you know, fear, shame, hope, you know, an oscillation of, of, of moods. And, you know, they say, just listen. But, you know, let's think about what just listening. Listening is not easy at all. What is it? What does listening actually do? So the short answer is listen. The, the long answer is, well, how on earth does one do that? And again, you know, therapy gives us some very useful pointers. You know, what do therapists do? You know, what is therapeutic listening? Essentially reflexive listening. You're not trying to give somebody an answer. You're trying to give them a sharper sense of what they're going through. So they'll say, you know, it was like this, da, da, da. and then you just replay them back to themselves yep. using slightly different words to show, to prove, demonstrate you really have been following. And you start to say something like, I hear that you know school is really difficult for you, or I hear that you don't really know what it means to be yeah. a husband or a wife anymore, or, or I'm hearing that being a parent is incredibly difficult, or a child, or you know, whatever it is. And it's so simple, but the effects can be momentous. I mean, people can just cheer up almost immediately. It's it's almost miraculous because what they've been craving all along is a clearer sense that others can see what is still quite confused in themselves and which feels very, still quite shameful. And so if somebody else recognizes it, it lifts that burden of confusion and shame. Mm, and it's assisting you in having that conversation with yourself yeah. because we are far better when we are almost held responsible or, or we're rising to another, you know, we, we actually do lift our thinking. And I think those kinds of reflective listening techniques help us do that as well, you know. So one of the interesting slants, and your book is really a whole bunch of interesting slants, right, that you can read at three in the morning and gets you thinking a little bit differently about the pain that you're in. One of them talks about the role of boredom and listening to it. And I quite liked this. It sort of jumped out at me. You say, as they grow older, many artists instinctively get better at listening to their boredom and produce greatly superior work as a result. What critics commonly refer to as a late style. Marked by impatience, I love this bit, marked by impatience, brevity, courage, and intensity. One thinks of Bach's exceptional later choral works, the final short stories of Chekhov, etc., etc. And you say, all of us need to learn to develop a late style, ideally as early on in our lives as possible. I love that idea that you get this impatience that, yes, boredom is real. Now what are you going to do with it? you then embrace the impatience and the need for just getting it out there. I mean, look, think of, think of 
people's educational trajectory. We all start, you know, kids are amazingly impatient, right? They want to put their fingers in the plug socket. They want to drink everything and knock things over the table. And they are constantly told, no, stop, pause, delay. And these are obviously vital and for the most part, very well-meaning commands, which we all imbibe. But we slightly overcook that lesson. And we end up in a situation where it's almost as though being bored starts to seem like a guarantor of value. It's not good until it's boring. You know, I, I, I'm always sort of puzzled by friends who pick up a, a, a book, maybe it's just won an international prize, very prestigious, and they'll, you know, it's 600 pages long and they'll be reading it. And I'll go, you've been enjoying this, like a god no. And I said, well, why, why are you reading it? And they said, because it won a prize. And yet they're bored. And they're totally bored. Mm. You know, well, we're going to go and see, you know, a play and it's uh, three hours long without an interval and it's totally boring. And they're doing it because, well, for very well-meaning reason, because they come to associate a certain degree of suffering with value. Now, it's one of those tricky ones because it's sometimes true, but particularly as you reach the later parts of life, it's unlikely to be as true as we think it is. And then we need to relearn a lesson that we knew when we were three, which is that it's, if it's very boring, it's probably because it's very boring. It genuinely is, and probably just leave it aside. And so we need to go back and rediscover, through adult lenses, some of that impatience of and the vigor of a young child mm. who you know wasn't that hampered about saying that person's quite boring i don't want to see them again or that food is horrible i don't want to eat it again it's almost like when you're three you've got more of a sense that life is short <laughs> you know it's sort of strange so yeah that's true that's true when you're yeah. three three years is a long time <laughs> but yeah it's um, interesting, though, there is a sweet spot because I think that one of the ills of our culture that also feeds into anxiety and despair is our inability to sit in the discomfort of things like boredom mm -hmm. and to to witness what goes on. So I almost think there's this kind of bell curve, you know, inverse bell curve, you know. So when you're in your sort of teens, 20s, 30s, it's probably appropriate to learn to sit in the discomfort of boredom. And unfortunately, I think the current generations who are in that age group, they've been discouraged from it, right? Again, as we were saying before, discomfort is something you eradicate, you move on from, and then you get anxious if you're still in that space, despite your best efforts. But I agree in your later years, and I love that late style. I'm I'm fully embracing my late style at the moment. I've got to say, I mean, you've less fucks to give apart from anything else and and you should have less fucks to give about the wrong things. You should be directing your care to the really important stuff because there's an urgency. I feel urgency can be you're genuinely creative. It's always you know, when you're writing, I find that nowadays when I write, I write faster, but I also write more briefly and I just, yeah, it's a little bit more telegraphic. I, I just think I've got to get the important stuff down and the rest doesn't matter. Just, just leave it out. Yeah. I mean, we do that with friends as well, people who are not particularly nourishing in our lives. We, you get more discerning and, and sort of fewer things but deeper. Absolutely. It's just something that I hadn't heard framed in that way before and I think it's a really interesting consolation to put into a book about the therapeutic journey. Now, look, just for a slight change of direction, in this book, you use artworks, particularly in the sort of second half of the book, to almost illustrate some of your points. And you've done that across a number of your books. I love that. You sort of stumble across this obscure painting and you use that as the reference point to explain something that's always quite profound. Are there maybe two paintings, pieces of artwork that you might be able to talk us through. And what I'll do for everybody listening, I will post a replication of that image so that you can see it on my Substack. That's sarahwilson.substack.com. So you can go and have a look at those images and maybe listen to this section of the, the podcast with the visuals in front of you. So yeah, you haven't got the book in front of you right now, but yeah, do you, are there some that sort of spring to mind? One, let's, let's maybe work on two. Okay, so well, one of the one of the artists I've come to really love is the the American uh, abstract artist uh, Agnes Martin, mm -hmm. who was manic depressive, uh, suffered from mental illness all her life, and she turned out across her life a number of extremely modest seeming but really sublime uh, canvases that are made up of grids and squares, just grids yes. and squares, and it was almost as though the the drama in her mind required her to calm herself down and to calm all of us down with these incredibly geometric, beautifully serene geometric images. And it's it's almost as though, you know, she's creating art that's that's pulling her away from the opposite, you know, 
inside her was the opposite of her art, but she's her art is, is, is her ideal. It's her paradise. It's what life should be like, but isn't for her. She lived an extremely difficult, chaotic life. But there's this incredible peace in her canvases that, that I deeply uh, uh, urge everyone to hunt out. Yeah, I, um, I can relate to that. I, I think a lot of people with, well, bipolar, manic depression, but also some other conditions. I was speaking to somebody with some severe autism. Um, maths was always a self and also anything with patterns, really linear and geometrical patterns like you know, logic and things like that was, you know, I used to do Lewis Carroll problems, you know, which are kind of various kind of types of mathematical equations used to solve these riddles. And I would do them till three in the morning as a teenager. Just my maths teacher gave them to me and, oh my goodness, it was a safe place. So I, I get that. I really get that. I could sort of park my anxiety into these patternings you know and that all made sense yeah, yeah. that's so interesting and then another picture that i really like is by the swiss artist ferdinand hodler and it's called the disappointed souls and it shows a number of figures in states of obvious despair it's like they're all sitting on a park bench yeah. together yeah but they're in their own world their own i know world. the painting yeah they're not communicating and it sums up you know very poignantly and they're kind of they've got their head in their hands, they're all in various types of despair. Yeah. You can almost sort of see disgust and regret mm -hmm. and, you know, they represent, yeah. They're sort of human archetypes of, of kind of despairing states. They're, they're everyone, they're, they're versions of us mm -hmm. and everyone we know. But the kind of poignant thing is that they're all sitting far apart from each other. So they're really close, but there's no attempt to acknowledge the other one next to there's them. No there's no relationship. There's no relationship. This sums up, you know, at, at our worst when we suffer, not only do we suffer, but we think we're alone in suffering. And this is something where art and podcasts and other things, friendship, can do a lot of work in, in, in simply saying to the person next to you on the park bench, look, this one's going crazy like you are. And that's okay. That's, yeah, say that's the work of civilization and culture, I think, to introduce us to one another, particularly in our more extreme states. Mm. And Hodler's painting is moving because it, it shows us that not happening and we... I think, you know, anyone seen that painting thinks, ah, yeah, that's that's what too often we're in, not just in despair, but lonely despair. And isn't that a pity? Yeah, yeah. The space between them is what you notice, really, even though they're sitting next to each other. It's, yeah, it's a very, it's, a, it's quite a disturbing image, I find. And so much artwork for me, and maybe it's just my mindset, I tend to gravitate towards depictions of loneliness, you know, I'm thinking of Edward Hopper's, is it the Night Hotel Room? Hotel Room. That one is my favourite. I know everybody loves Nighthawks, but, and I'll put a picture of both in on the Substack post for everyone listening. But yeah, the Hotel Room, it's a, is, is it the one where she's sort of half undressed? She's yeah, wearing she's a slip a, and reading a letter. Yeah, and she's got suitcases. That's it. And you don't know whether she's arrived or she's going. For me, it reminds me of my own experiences traveling where I arrive somewhere and I'm hot and I've got to take everything off down to my underpants. And then I sit there and I go, hmm, here I am. Now what? You know, I don't know that that's necessarily what's depicted there, but that's... The beauty of paintings, we can all come to them. But mm. for me, she's been abandoned in love or yeah. some relationship has collapsed. And she's... The letter suggests the that. The letter suggests something. You know, mm. so, but yeah. Or she's about to leave a letter behind, you know, something like that. But of course, you know, it's not depressing. It's not a depressing painting. It's it's a, a painting of a depressing or sad scene. But that we, as the viewer, become friends with you know, the lady in the hotel room, and and therefore her pain is somehow diminished because her pain is our pain, and our pain is her pain. And so there's a kind of community yeah. that grows up, and and that's the point of art. Melancholia, I think, is misunderstood and little accessed experience I think I find melancholia a very very rewarding meaningful space to be in yeah. and it's a wonderful word and yes um, we should we should all be aiming to yeah more melancholy in our lives or, or recognize its its legitimate presence it can take you to such a beautiful open space where once again you then feel the congruency the belongingness because life is melancholic Melancholia is often about a homesickness and I think a homesickness from ourselves, you know. And so when you can start to recognise those kinds of things, then you can go and seek out a life that accesses that, that melancholia, that can open up that space 
so that you can have those discussions with yourself that then ultimately lead to healing and a more meaningful life. Also, you know, melancholy is, is a kind of, as you hinted, a, a social emotion. Sadness yes. can feel very personal. Melancholy is something that's open to everyone. So once we realize that it's not just me who's unhappy, it's life that's difficult. That's a huge, you know, think of Buddhism's opening tenet, life is suffering. What a, what a hopeful, what a generous sentiment. Not your life is suffering, but life is suffering. Yeah. You know, that immediately makes everybody feel better. Yeah. There's that quote from, my favorite quote from uh, the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca. He goes, what need is there to weep over parts of life? He says, the whole of it calls for tears. <laughs> I always thought, yeah, absolutely, it's all there. It is. I think that's probably a good note to finish on. I could talk to you about love, relationships, marriage, because you've written about all of those things over the years and I've always thoroughly enjoyed them. I think a recent essay was you probably married the wrong person or something like that. I remember catching that one. I'll put a link to that actually in the in the show notes. Alanda Baton, thank you so much. Thank you for going to the dark spaces at 3am for us on behalf of all of us so that we have, I guess, that outstretched arm that tells us we're not alone. Thank you so much. Philosophy indeed works as a therapeutic device, and I really encourage everyone listening who wrestles with some kind of mental distress to give it a go, if you have not already. And look, it's not just about the wisdoms gleaned from the philosophical insight itself. It's also about the practice of reading the considered reflective words. So reading itself can take us down into that relationship with ourselves that relationship that can emulate a relationship with a therapist. I don't want to glibly rattle off Alan's hacks that he covers in this episode, but I will vouch for dark chocolate and I will vouch for reflexive listening as a technique for being in pain with others. But instead, I'll share a bunch of philosophical resources and poetry suggestions that have helped me over the years. And look, I'll encourage you to do the same, to share your suggestions over at that Substack conversation, where, as I say, you can see the artwork and you can also engage in a conversation with the rest of the community and me after the episode has aired. So Alain's books are a very good starting point. Ditto the range of School of Life books, which you can get via his website, which is in the show notes. The podcast episode I did with AC Grayling, another British philosopher. We talk through how to develop a philosophy of your own, and I'll put a link to that episode also in the show notes. The work of Mary Oliver is incredible, the poetry of David White as well, in particular his book Consolations. Uh, He's also been a guest here on Wild, and I'll put a link to that episode. On that episode, he reads some of his consoling poetry. It's, It's incredible. The existentialists can provide incredible comfort. Camus and Simone Vale are my favourites. Simone's not strictly an existentialist, but she was writing at a similar time between the two world wars. Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath, they write about the human condition in a way that also makes me feel much less alone in my anxiety. Blaise Pascal and Kierkegaard, also helpful. So art is not something I'm overly experienced with, but maybe some of you have some artworks that are worth reflecting on or even books about art that you can recommend for anyone who has a troubled soul. And uh, post that on the Substack. I do like this finishing quote from Alan. Art is a weapon against despair. And he adds, religions knew what art was for. It was for crying with and imploring. My friends, please do stay wild and I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.